What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I somehow got into a little rabbit hole where this is all I'm seeing and that can enrage someone if that's all you see. And I think that's happening to people all over the place. Whatever bias you have, that's algorithm will find you and show you what you want to see and prove that you're right. Hi, welcome to the Mark Devine Show. I'm your host, Mark Devine. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless by talking to some of the world's most compassionate, courageous, and resilient leaders, folks from all walks of life, stoic philosophers and entrepreneurs, cognitive scientists and nutritionists, and folks who've climbed the corporate ladder. My guest today is one of those latter guests, Errol L. Pierre. He's a healthcare executive, a professor and public speaker, author of The Way Up, Climbing the Corporate Mountain as a Professional of Color. Errol's a senior VP at one of the most notable healthcare nonprofits in New York, previously COO at Blue Cross Blue Shield. He's also an adjunct professor at NYU and Columbia University and Baruch College teaching health economics. He's an in-demand speaker on leadership, diversity, and healthcare, and has addressed hundreds of audiences to include the National Urban League for Young Professionals and Fordham University. He's got a bachelor's degree in business administration from Fordham and a master's in health policy from New York University, and recently completed his doctorate in business administration from Baruch College. Before I get into the show, I wanted you to know that I'm opening up slots for our Unbeatable Coach Certification and our Unbeatable Team for 2024. The Unbeatable Team is an amazing year of transformational training. It's where I direct my full attention and time in coaching and training. I don't do it anywhere else. It's here in the Unbeatable Team that I can give my full attention to help those deeply committed to transforming to become uncommon in a world that you know is rapidly collapsing into fear, moral relativism, and mediocrity. We meet virtually every month as a team, come together four times during the year for three days of powerful in-person training and practice, and I'm here to help you break through any barriers and to crush all of your goals for 2024. So if you're ready to go deep with me and willing to do the work, I can guarantee amazing strides will be made. Go to unbeatableteam.com and unbeatablecoaching.com to learn more about these unbeatable events. Now, back to the show. Super stoked to have you today, Errol. Thanks for being my guest on the Mark Divine Show. I really love to start these shows just by right understanding kind of where you're from originally. What were some of the foundational things that happened in your life that shaped you, the challenges, the screw-ups, you know, and the successes that got you on your track? It could go so many ways in life, right? <laughs> Single decision here and a single bad influence there. And boy, man, we could be toast. Give us like a, you know, high level overview of the formation of Errol. Sure. So I always start with my father because he's been so instrumental in who I am. So he is a Haitian born immigrant that somehow, some way made it from a tiny town in Haiti called Gonaive to New York City. Wow. When was that, by the way? 1969. 
That was back when Haiti wasn't even as bad as it is today. I mean, like that was probably, it's gotten a lot worse, hasn't it? It's definitely gotten worse. But when he was there, before he came over, there was a ruler that they called Baby Doc. He was the son of Papa Doc. And so it was pretty bad back then, just from a, there was a despotic, you know, dictator that was ruling the country. And he somehow made it out to America as an immigrant and had a dream of being the most selfless man that I know to create me. I start from that. So I grew up in New York, luckily, because if I was born and raised in Haiti, my total life would be totally sure. different. So luckily, I was born on these shores, land of the free, and just saw a man tirelessly work morning, noon, night. He left for work at four in the morning, came home after I was at, at bed, had multiple jobs, had a you know small business that he used to take me out to do. And I just watched this guy never complain. That's really what, where I got my values from, around work ethic, because you know my worst day is nowhere near anything that he's ever, it's like nothing. It's negligible compared to what he's right. went through. Wow. So it puts things in perspective. And he was cleaning offices, cleaning houses. He was making sometimes $5 an hour you know, when he first got here. And so when I hear minimum wage, like $15. Right, yeah. It's like, I'll wow. take that, you know, compared to what my dad was going through. And he was selfless. You know, he put my mom through school. So he was working full time while my mom went to pharmacy school. He put a roof over our head. You know, I didn't know that we were wanting anything until you compare yourself to your friends. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't compare myself, I always had food, always had a shelter over my head. So that's how, kind of how I grew up. Work hard, keep your head down, stay quiet, mm. you know, be fortunate, you know, understand your blessings and understand how fortunate you are to be here. And that's kind of my foundation. Wow. Man, I'd just like to pause there because what you just said is just so powerful for anyone who's, you know, kind of dealing with the largesse of our society. You know, culturally, we're at that time where, like, it, it seems pretty easy for a lot of people, like, you know, with the technologies that we have and the, the amount of things that government does for you that you, people just take for granted that certainly weren't there in 1969, right? 100%. And just all this uh, largesse, it's easy for younger people to take that for granted and to then think that we just had that or your dad just had it growing up. It's not true. Yeah. It's a lot of work. I'll give you a story. So there was these shoes that used to light up when you walk. I remember those. I think they call them yeah, LA gear lights or whatever. I remember one of those shoes so bad because everyone at school had them. And my dad sat me down and said, I need to work four hours cleaning offices to buy that shoe. So I'll get it. But is that what you want? because it's going to be four hours of us vacuuming, taking out the trash. And so early age, I was 12, 13, 14, he didn't say no. He actually brought me into the decision-making to say, you know, these things don't just grow on trees. This is what it's going to take. And you know, I was like, hmm, do I want to have my dad work an extra four hours, or would I love him to maybe come home at 8 o'clock instead of midnight? No, oh, that's pretty cool. That's powerful. Yeah, it puts things in perspective. And so I, I value everything I learned from him. And you know, one of the best teachers I ever had, regardless of all my academic right. powers, was one of the best you know, teachers I ever had. So how was school for you? Were you an academic type, or did you struggle with that at all? Yeah, you know, I was one that too smart for my own good. So. I didn't do homework. I was distracted. I talked to other kids in class. I wanted to play outside, but I was smart. In between my mother and a teacher, Mrs. Powell, who really just went over above and beyond, sat me down and was like, 
you're going to squander this talent. You're a smart kid. If it's too easy for you, that doesn't mean you get distracted and distract other people. Let's give you different type of work so that you stay occupied. So I was always a smart kid, but I didn't start utilizing it and realizing it probably too late. So around, let's say, end of middle school, early high school, in 10th grade, I started to get some semblance of seriousness around schooling. And that's because we had these like state exams called regences. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with the regents. I was able to take a test and my teacher was like, oh, you did really well. You should take another one. You should take another one. And so I stumbled into pre-calc and calculus as like a junior. And it was all because, you know, Mrs. Powell sat me down and was like, you're going to squander this talent. So it took me a while. Hmm. <laughs> to use my intelligence, understand that I'm smart, not wasted, because what I was doing before that was just kind of being distracted and having fun, which I think most boys do. Yeah, for sure. But it's so cool that most of the people that I talk to have like one person like that or two people, you know, you, your father and then this teacher. It's incredible, you know, for all of us to recognize the impact that we can have on someone if we care, right? So, yep. And you may not know it actually, right? Like you may not know it. 100%. And we can be that person for other people. That's what I've learned to realize. I never know I'm someone else's, you know, tap on the shoulder. So, yeah, to always be open to being in service to others and you can change someone's life and never know it. And that's the beautiful thing. 100%. You went on to Fordham. Did you go there with a specific intent to study something? What was that? Yeah, it's a great question. I would take the subway train as a high school student, and I would love seeing these guys in really fancy suits, pinstripe suits. I was one of them for four years. <laughs> <laughs> and they were folding New York Times papers, like really big, and you'd hear the paper full. And I'd be on the train as a kid, and I'm like, they look so important. You know, their shoes are shiny, the suits look tight, they look very, like they have make a lot of money. And they look so important with this newspaper. Like, who are they? And so I went to Fordham, a major in business, finance. And I was like, I want to be those guys in a suit. That was my kind of <laughs> angle. <laughs> Not knowing exactly what they do. That's awesome. <laughs> it was like, they look like they have money. They look sharp. They have this vibe around them. The I'm funny like, thing is, you know, if they really had a lot of money, they wouldn't be riding the subway. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so I was like, I'm gonna do business. I didn't know what that meant. I was like, I'll pick finance. And that's how kind of, I, I kind of went to Fordham. And I also had a track scholarship. So I ran uh, D1 oh, wow. winter well, cool. and spring track as well. Right. And I wanted to be in Fordham because I definitely wanted to be in New York city. I knew I wanted to go to college with the city being in my campus, as opposed to like some of the you know big schools that are kind of far away. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got into college. And with business, to me, it turned into solving puzzles. So I loved the fact that math always has an answer and you're either right or you're wrong. Like the classes that I used to take was like subjective and you have to give your opinion and the professor could say, I think you're all right, but there was like no right answer. I was like, nah, I don't like this. Like <laughs> I like the rubric where it's like, right. tell me the answer. I either solved it or I didn't. And so math really spoke to me it was like a puzzle to me, solving problems. And in, in finance, it just made even more sense to say, okay, there's a solution. Like you know, when you do accounting, there's a solution on, a, on the left side, you have to see it on the right side. So that really just spoke to me. Mm -hmm. And I ended up excelling at finance and stuff. So that's kind of what I did. 
I was also working part-time while I was at school. So I was doing track, my academics, and working part-time as well. So I was always staying busy, which I think I learned from my dad, just the work ethic and just get it done type of thing. Yeah. Josh, it just reminded me of my time in New York City. I was at NYU getting my MBA and working for Coopers and Librand full-time. And I wasn't in a sport because I wasn't, I was in graduate school, but I would um, run in the morning and go to the gym at lunch and go to the martial arts studio in between work and school. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Scholar athlete. <laughs> Scholar athlete. Yeah. And then I became a warrior, threw it all away. But hey, that's all different. <laughs> After Fordham, did you get into the workforce for a while or did you continue education? What was your path up to that? Yep. So graduated Fordham. While I was there, I had an internship at the largest health insurance company in New York, Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield. How I got that internship, just it's an amazing story. So I decided to work at a beauty supply store. And you know, people always ask me, like, how did you end up there? What happened was I used to teach karate when I was in high school. One of the students that I had, I was a black belt, so I was a senpai, that was teaching younger kids mm-hmm. as I was training myself. And one of the younger kids I had, their parent, just really loved me because like my kid has so much discipline. Thank you for spending time with them. Thanks for focusing on them. They're just growing up to be a nice young man. And I owe it to the fact that they're learning their discipline at your karate, at your dojo. And so he offered me a job. He's like, I was in high school about to go to college. He's like, well, how do you make any money? You know, because you're teaching these classes for free. I was like, well, yeah, I would love a summer job. So he's like, okay, come work in my warehouse. So it was a beauty supply store and salon. And I would, I started out just taking shampoo bottles and dropping them off at the salon. So they would put an order in, I'd get the order, pull it and drop it with another driver. And me being nerdy, the nerdy guy I am, I was in the warehouse waiting for orders. So we'd just sit around sometimes for a couple hours doing nothing. I was like, let me read the back of these bottles. What are they? You know, what's shampoo, what's conditioner, what's gel, all that kind of stuff. And I'm dropping off boxes. The owner of the store is helping a customer and they're like, I'm looking for a shampoo that doesn't have laurel sulfate. Laurel sulfate is like the tough detergent in a shampoo that actually cleans your hair, but some people are allergic to it. So you have to find, you know, sort of a natural shampoo. And I knew what brand it was. I'm like, Paul Brown. I was reading the back of the bottle. That's awesome. Paul Brown doesn't have laurel sulfate. So I'm like with my hand truck dropping off boxes and I'm like, oh, boss, I got Paul Brown in, in the truck. I can bring it in. He's like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome story. <laughs> what? How do you know that? Yeah. He's like, what? like totally out of the blue. How do you know that? I'm like, I reorganized the warehouse to make things easier for when I pick up stuff. And while I'm opening boxes, I'm reading the bottles. He's like, okay, well, get the box, bring it in. And you're not in the warehouse anymore. I need you in the front office. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how I moved to the front. That's great. And I was doing Saturday, Sunday. I was opening, closing. I was handling the money. Like he really gave me way more responsibility after he kind of knew who I was. And that's how I met the chief operating officer of Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield. She would go to that salon and I would have never seen her because I was in the back doing the stock room and in the warehouse. But because I got moved to the front, I was able to see her. She's the one that asked me for my resume while I was junior in college, still working at that store. And I was like, yep, I have a resume. And that's how I got my first internship at Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield. So So cool. I interned there for two years. And then that's where I started my full-time job after I graduated. But 
I always have to tell that shampoo changed my life. I was like, I always have to tell that story because that's how I got my first job. That's a great story. I love that. It just shows you how synchronicity, you know, really plays a role. A little while ago, we were just talking about how mentorship, even if it's unseen by the mentee, plays such a powerful role. Oh, yeah. Same thing with just synchronicity. If you pay attention, you know, like you were paying attention to the contents and you were attentive to your job, you weren't less like regretting it or resenting it. You know, you were grateful for it and you were attentive to it. So you wanted to bring improvement to some process and learn, even if it was just beauty products. I love that. So that's a great lesson for everyone. It's like, whatever you're doing, do it all out. Even if it's temporary, like an internship, or even if you're down in your luck because you lost your job and now you got another opportunity and you're like, oh, well, I just do this until something else comes along. Do it all out because the next opportunity will present itself as a result of that, right? It's for you as the COO coming in or getting that front office opportunity. 100%. I always say you never know who you're going to meet. So every day is an opportunity for your next role. So you're always interviewing. Absolutely. You're just always on an interview. That's the kind of thing. Yeah. Always on an interview. I love that. That aligns with my martial arts master because I studied karate in New York as well with a guy named Tadashi Nakamura, grandmaster of Sado Karate. I don't know if you ever heard of Sado. No, no. Pretty much headquartered in Manhattan. It's a great program. He had like three or 400,000 students around the world. Like a really well-known karate guy. He came over to the United States to run Kokenshai from Masayama, and then he had a falling out with him. And Masayama, his thugs tried to kill him. And anyways, they made peace, and he started Sado, I think, in 19... 19- 79 or 75 or something like that. At any rate, he was also a Zen teacher. And so every Thursday night, he had a Zen class, you know, so the senior students would go. And I ended up joining that as a white belt. And he would give these little chalkboard talks at the end, little koan lectures, you know. And one of them was uh, one day, one lifetime. And that was basically what you just described. Like every day, you have an opportunity to determine the rest of your life. And oh, by the way, you know, from the warrior's perspective, it may be your last opportunity, so make it count. That's always stuck with me. I've got a chapter in my next book titled after that. Like I just really revered his teaching. He was my mentor who changed my life. That's awesome. I love the sentiment of one day, one lifetime. It just captures it well. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? So you went over to Blue Cross Blue Shield, and this began your like your real professional white collar career. Yep. And we've heard so much about, you know, like the challenges that a black man has in, or a black woman has in those professions, the glass ceiling, you know, discrimination, all that. What was your experience? Yeah. And what is your experience? So I walked in really not knowing what to expect and probably just not prepared for what I was going to face. Really? Okay. I think that, let me say it this way. So all the virtues and values I learned from my dad were great, but because he never had white-collar experience, he was never in corporate America, there was all these unsaid rules that I had no idea about. So I didn't know about corporate culture. I didn't know about the water cooler, the in-and-out groups, and it's not what you do, it's who you know. Like All those things that you just kind of learn, I didn't know. So I came in, eyes wide open, assuming the egalitarian system, right? Like your dad exactly, taught you, right? exactly. You work hard and it pays off, right? It's a type of thing. I wouldn't say that I've dramatically faced discrimination. I wouldn't say that. But what I think that I learned is, wow, it doesn't matter how hard I work. It doesn't matter my production or what I produce. It doesn't matter how polite I am. There are going to be people that potentially are in positions of power 
that have assumptions about me even before I open my mouth. Right. And so I just had to learn how to overcome those assumptions. And you could come across, they call them microaggressions. I think sometimes there's just people that are just not nice people. Yes. And you just have to figure out how to navigate nice people. And I think early in my career, I would blame myself for the actions of others. Like, oh, he didn't give me eye contact. He spoke to me condescendingly. He didn't give me a raise. I didn't get this. I didn't get that because of something I did. And I think I had to mature over time to learn that sometimes these things are out of my control. It has nothing to do about me. It's them. Right. So that was one of the big lessons for me. The other thing I did was attach my value to how I was perceived that I was doing at my job. Mm -hmm. So if I got a very good rating and a good bonus, I was like, I feel really good because the company says I'm good. But then if you don't have as good of a year, where you do struggle on a project, I literally was like getting depressed. Like, oh my goodness, I have no self-worth because this project at work went south. And that's totally unhealthy to attach your personal value to a project or personal value to work. So I think early on, because I did not have a mentor, I did not have anyone around me that knew how to navigate corporate America. I didn't know about corporate culture. I didn't know about all the unsaid things that occur. I kind of just was stumbling upon them accidentally without knowing type of thing. Did you see anyone else get derailed by those things and end the career early because they just found it hard to navigate? I did. So there is a thing that I learned early as a kid. I remember my dad told me this. He's like, you can't control what people do to you. The only thing you can control is how you react to how people treat you. One of the most valuable lessons anyone <laughs> could learn. Yeah, 100%. He's like, someone can spit in your face. What you do next is the most important thing. And this happens being African-American in America with the judicial system. Like, a cop can stop you. How you react to that cop is all about you. Right. Are you irate or do you comply? Like, that's up to you. That's right. That's up to you. And then you suffer the consequences of those decisions. And so, yeah, I saw people derail. Like, someone says a condescending comment and you fly off the handle. No one remembers what the condescending comment was. All they remember is that, wow, John went crazy. What happened? He like started yelling. And that's it. That's it. You can't say, well, someone said something mean to John. No. It's because of that. Like, no, no, you're the one who lost control. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So I definitely saw people lose their cool or give it back. So like a leader is mean or gives the cold shoulder and they give it back, you know, because I think what I learned in corporate America is discrimination in the old days in America was the white hood and the noose. The new form of bias is I ice you out. I give you a cold shoulder. I don't invite you to the meeting. You don't come to the happy hour. You're not involved with the things that we're doing. You're not on the email chain. You don't get the nice project. You get the crappy project. And so those are harder to like point out and say, oh, maybe it's not discrimination. Maybe it's just your boss is an asshole. Like, <laughs> you know, there's so many, there's so many different ways to look at it. It's a good or chance both. it's both. Right? <laughs> and how you react to it is so important. And I've seen people just derail their career because they come out with just fire and fury and they absolutely look insane. And everyone looks at them. So it's like, what's wrong with you? You lost your cool. Like, that's not professional. That's fascinating. Such a good lesson. Emotional control is really, really important. It doesn't mean 
you can't fight for justice and do what's right, but losing control in that moment is not going to get you there, right? It's not going to help anyone. 100%. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm at Pepperdine getting my PhD in global leadership and change, and I hear a lot about critical race theory, and it's just taught as if it's just gospel. It's just like, don't even question it. It's real. I'm white, so I don't see it, but I could see it if I could look from you know, someone else's perspective. I could probably see it if someone pointed out like where it existed or how it existed, and I haven't studied it much deeper, but I'm just curious. What do you think about the systemic nature of racism in this country? Yeah, it's a great question. So this is the way I think of it. So you have a group of people that came to this country, and they were here, and for a generation, so you're talking, they came in the early 1800s, or maybe late 1700s, up to 1865, when uh, slavery was finally ended, and they were not allowed to read. Reading would be a form of punishment. You have a generation of a family that's here that was not allowed to read. Plus, what happened with the purchasing of slaves was families got separated. So people would say, I want that big guy and I want that girl. And so they were separating families as they chose who they wanted to be on their plantation. So you have separation of family where we know how important a family unit is. Right. And then you have lack of education because we knew if slaves knew how to read, they would revolt. So we have to keep them not from reading so that we can keep them subjugated, right? So, okay. Then they're free, 1865, and then you go from 1865 to 1964, another 100 years of they're free, but they're not. So you go through Jim Crow, all these other types of things. So they couldn't vote. They couldn't make their own money. If they did make money, they weren't making a lot. If they did go to college, it was like they call it a talented 10th. It was a very few and far between that were able to go. And in 1964, now we're in modern society, everyone's free. Great. So it's like you are at the starting line, but when you're about to run the race, there's some people who have an anchor on them, their grandparents and their great-grandparents, no education, no land. Families divided. Families divided. And then there's other folks that I have education, I have my family, I have my nuclear family, I have land. And so we'll run the race. Don't get me wrong. I don't make any excuses for anything. We'll run the race. You just have to have the acknowledgement of what came before. Yes. We're not blaming the past. We're not saying the past is the predictor of the future. Just need to acknowledge what transpired because so much of your history is important. The one thing that's interesting is like 9-11, never forget the Holocaust. We can't forget because we'll be doomed to repeat it. And then for some strange reason, slavery is, ah, that happened, you know, so long ago. What are you talking about? Why do we talk about it? And so I'm like, these big traumatic things that's never forget. Let's make sure we don't repeat it. I will never endorse or condone someone who blames their suffering in 2023 for slavery. I'll never condone that. But what I will say is they had a different start in life than someone else did. Fair enough. And so I think the recognition of that is all I think we should acknowledge. Beyond that, it shouldn't be an excuse. It should never be an excuse. Yeah, I think where the rub is with a lot of the cultural discussions is it's not a discussion, right? It's a bunch of opinions and shouting, right? So you have, you know, a large group who say, well, reparations and like we were done wrong, so it needs to be fixed. And a large group of people on the other side are like, well, that wasn't me. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. That happened 100 years ago. It wasn't me who did that. So why should I pay for that? And so the point is that both are right. Yeah. 
it's like with politics. I'm a post-conservative, post-liberal, post-Democrat, <laughs> post. No, I don't want any label. That's why I love that new group that's forming called No Labels. Like we got to move beyond the labels and have conversations. Right? Open your heart to the fact that everyone's right and everyone's wrong. Hundred percent. Great example of that is like affirmative action, which is a very controversial topic. The way I view it is this: a school is better when there are different thinking and groups of thoughts that's in the classroom so that they can be debated. Diversity, in other words, right? Diversity, you don't get tested. Great. By no means do we want to lower standards for a specific group of people. Because one, that's detrimental to the process in general, but it's also detrimental to the student that you accept. Because then they know they're like, Technically, you wouldn't be here unless we lower the standards. Right? Sets their expectation as less than. Exactly. But I do think there's a recognition that if I have the same exact two students and I'm trying to decipher, okay, of these two that, you know, same GPA, same this, same that, same that, of these two, what should I do? And I have one spot left. I would land on what would be the better experience for the class body. Mm -hmm. Like that would be where I land. So I think when you're trying to break ties, Diversity can factor into the equation. It shouldn't be an excuse to say I lowered the standards. That's like a very pragmatic approach to it. You never hear that conversation in the news. It's always, they took my spot. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know. Or I deserve that. We deserve that spot. Right. Exactly. I am very grateful for my doctoral experience because we have an incredibly multicultural program. I'm one of probably. Maybe, you know, out of the entire graduate school in my year, maybe like five white men. It's fascinating. It's been very good for me to be in a room sitting next to people of all different races and cultures and to just have these kind of conversations with us. One of the most valuable things. I wish I did it when I was 30 instead of my age right now, which is not 30. <laughs> 31, 31. 31, exactly. <laughs> but I do think our country is still, we're nowhere near a melting pot. We're still like, I think they call it a salad bowl. So even though we're a very diverse country, we're still in our own pockets. And people can go their whole lifetime and not have true interactions. Not just I pass someone in an airport, but like true interactions with someone who's, you know, a different culture, a different background. Most of our divisiveness, I think, derives from the lack of exposure to other cultures. I think that's what it comes from. I agree with that. And social media allows yourself to kind of wall yourself off and to get into that echo chamber. And that's dramatically magnified division in this country. I really hope that we can figure out how to fix that in the next five years. Otherwise, it's going to tear us apart. <laughs> On that note, I love that you brought up social media. So this happened to me. I realized on my feed that because of you know who I'm friends with and what my friends post, that I was getting a disproportionate share of any type of altercation that was race-related. So anything that was like someone in a supermarket and it's a white person and a black person and there was a fight. Was this the algorithm doing it or? Exactly. It was the algorithm. Interesting. And so I remember, I was like, wow, that became my world. Like I'm thinking this happens every single day, every single second. <laughs> every, right. It happens, but not to that degree. And I, I remember having to like cleanse my... Instagram or Twitter feed because I was like, I somehow got into a little rabbit hole where this is all I'm seeing. And that can enrage someone if that's all you see. And I think that's happening to people 
all over the place. Of course. Whatever bias you have, that algorithm will find you and show you what you want to see and prove that you're right. That's right. Exactly. Well said. It's so true. Yeah. Well said. As a listener to The Mark Divine Show, you must know how important that I believe sleep is. I talk about it a lot. It's crucial that you get great sleep. One of the ways you can do that is through incredibly comfortable sheets and pillows. That's why I love Cozy Earth. You can reinvent your sanctuary with Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding collections. Pillows, sheets, blankets, indulge in their luxury without the luxury price. Cozy Earth was named one of Oprah's favorite things in 2018. Their best-selling bamboo sheet set is temperature-regulating and incredibly soft. I love this thing. You can sleep with confidence thanks to their generous warranty. Luxury bedding essentials that provide peace of mind and endless comfort. Cozy's products are crafted from responsibly sourced viscose from bamboo, ensuring you rest easy in more ways than one. They stand by the durability of their products with a remarkable 10-year warranty. That's incredible. You can get a decade of restful sleep. So I encourage you to check out Cozy Earth at CozyEarth.com. They provide an exclusive offer for you, Mark Divine Show listeners. You can get up to 35% off site-wide. If you use the code DIVINE, that's D-I-V-I-N-E at checkout. Again, CozyEarth.com, use the code DIVINE at checkout. Get 35% off their incredible pillows, sheets, and blankets. These things are awesome, so check it out. hoo Yeah, I mean, I think what started out as like a really useful service has descended rapidly you know, over the past 10 years into something that's really, really dangerous for this country, so like we said. so. Hopefully we can fix it. If not, just stop using the stuff. I use social media just for my business, but it's like I have a team of people who post that stuff. I don't actually, someone sends me something on Instagram, like by text or something. It takes me to the page and it says I need to log in. I'm like, nah, I don't, <laughs> I don't log into that. You're better for it. You're better for it. Exactly. You're better for it. <laughs> so your book is called Way Up. Tell us about the lessons or stories. You know, I know we've already covered a few, but like, what were some of the other? insights that you wanted to share to help other professionals like you kind of succeed at a high level and, and navigate some of the issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and bias and nasty people, you know, who just don't see things your way. Yeah, 100%. So I think the first thing is the way up climbing the corporate mountain as a professional of color. The first thing I wanted to call out was that it is a mountain. It's not a corporate ladder. <laughs> That's an interesting distinction. Yeah. For you, it's a mountain, right? Maybe for a white guy, it's a ladder. It's <laughs> just one rung at a time. Every screw up, you get promoted. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I called it out because I said, I wish when I started my job as entry level, I knew it was a mountain. I knew that I had to prepare for this climbing of a mountain. So I actually started out the book talking about my trip to Thailand where I was in Chiang Mai and climbed Doi Antanan. And it was like, Man, when you do a mountain climb, like you have a guide, you have extra food, you have a change of clothes, you have all these different things to prepare for the trip. And here I am coming into an entry-level role in corporate America, just like showing up in flip-flops. Like, hey, I'm here. <laughs> Shorts on and flip-flops. <laughs> if you really want to play in this sphere of corporate America, you got to understand the rules and you have to understand this is going to be an arduous trip and trek and just get prepared for it. That's the first piece. The second piece, this is like one of my favorite phrases. So have the courage to make a million mistakes and the wisdom not to make the same mistake a million times. Yeah, I love that. And so what happens is, so you're a person of color, you 
join corporate America, you look around you, there's not a lot of people that look like you. So immediately you're kind of now a little bit quieter because you feel like you don't know who to talk to and how to feel like you feel included in things. And that could be your assumption of what people are doing. And that could also be what people are doing. So you have to kind of check that too. And you're then least likely to take chances. You're least likely to raise your hand and ask for help. You're least likely to make mistakes because now you're just all in your head on, do I fit in? Am I accepted? That can derail a career because I tell people, your peers are not thinking about if they're accepted. They don't care. They're just doing their work. And then now you're using your mental capacity to worry about if you're accepted, which means you can't give 100% to your job because you're distracted on trying to think if you fit in. And so the have the courage to make a million mistakes is even though you feel like you're the other, even though you feel like you don't belong, even though it's awkward, even though it's uncomfortable, get very comfortable being uncomfortable and make mistakes. Make mistakes. To make mistakes means you have to take risks. You have to take risks. So raise your hand, ask for the tough jobs, say you want to do it, meet new people that you would never talk to. If you're at a happy hour, don't just sit in the corner with the people that you feel comfortable with. Like go meet someone new that doesn't look like you and like really get out there. You have to put yourself in a position where you can make mistakes. And then the second piece of it is, you know, the wisdom not to make the same mistake a million times. If you make a hundred mistakes, that's a hundred new lessons. And so you're going to be that much smarter than the other person who's playing it safe. But if you make the same mistake a million times, then you deserve to be fired. So shame on you. So <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> so you got to learn from your mistakes. Don't just make them. You got to learn from them type of thing. Yeah, we used to say in the SEAL teams that there's no such thing as failure, just a failure to learn. Exactly. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. And then the last big lesson is really, one, the importance of mentorship. And so I talk about in the book where the term mentor comes from. Homer wrote the Odyssey. Odyssey is about Odysseus. He goes, fights in the Trojan War, leaves his son Telemachus behind. Who does he trust to raise his son? A man named Mentor. And I think people don't understand the gravity of what a mentor truly is. They don't think of it as like, this guy left his son for a couple of years and trusted one man to raise him. That's a mentor. That's a mentor. Right, right. So at work, when you're like, I have a mentor, it's like, is he really your mentor? Like, is this your trusted advisor? father-like figure that's taking you under their wing to show you the ropes? Or is it just a guy you get beers with to complain about your boss? Like there's a difference. And so just trying to explain like what a true mentor is. And if you have one that's like that, you have to be a good mentee. So I actually have a whole section in the book that explains before you even ask for a mentor, are you ready to be a mentee? Like, are you ready to have the agenda ready for your mentor? Reach out to them, have respect, keep things in confidence with them, like, are you ready for that type of relationship? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the big lessons too. How did you find your mentor? How did that come about? I got lucky. I got lucky. My mentor that, and I talk about him all the time, his name is Jeff Grayling, Irish guy with red hair. So I started my full-time job at Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield. Little did I know that when you buy a suit, the pockets are sewn in when you get it. And you're supposed to undo them, right? Right? I didn't know. <laughs> so I'm there my first week, my first two weeks. He introduces himself. He was the VP of the department. I was like a entry-level analyst. And he asked me if I wanted to come get coffee with him. We got coffee, started chatting. I was nervous as hell because I'm like, mm -hmm. he's a VP. I don't know what to say. I don't want to sound stupid. And he made me feel very comfortable. It was very relaxed. He's like, you want to stop in to Brooks Brothers with me? I was like, yeah, sure. 
So we go into Brooks Brothers and very politely and cordial was like, hey, you know, when you get these suits, the tailor will open up the pockets for you, you know, then you can use them. And, you know, where you put your pocket square, those get opened up too. And then in the back, you get a double vent suit. They put little clasps on them and you just open them up. And it was like the nicest tutelage and the nicest way to provide feedback that's like, I see you in the office. I see you got your... <laughs> got your nice new suit with the time you're buttoned up pockets. You got to unsew them and then open them up. That's awesome. Ever since then, like, we were off to the races. I got coffee with him in the morning. We would talk about the industry. He's like, what do you want to do? I'd tell him what I want to do. He would advocate for me. He would put me on projects that were tough. I could come to him at any time. And he really took me under his wing. To this day, I still talk to him. He's a great guy. And I just remember how nice he was. And he didn't have to do that for me. And so I always feel this indebted to other people to do that for other people as well. That makes sense. And then that leads to the question is, how does one become a really good mentor? I mean, you just modeled one for us in your Irish friend. But if someone says, I think I'm ready for mentorship, like how do they know and how do they become a really good mentor? Yeah, I think what I've learned is my first foray at mentoring was I wanted people to become me. And then I learned a true mentor helps people become themselves. Mm, and so that. it's when you have something to give back and all you're doing is shepherding them. You're kind of like the bumpers when someone's bowling, just to say, ah, go back to the left, ah, go back <laughs> to the right. You're kind of just a little, and you shepherd them through their own process of growth. You never give them the answer, but answer their questions and guide them to remember where their North Star is. Like, hey, look up. Don't forget. Are you going the right way? You're kind of off. Bump back. But you never give them the true answer, and then you're ready to mentor. The other thing I think is a misnomer is you need to go to like the CEO for a mentor. And you actually don't. It's usually someone who's one level or two levels above you could be the most amazing mentor because you want to get to where they are. And so I think the other thing that entry level people are like, I need to talk to the senior vice president. It's like, no, you know, if there's a manager or a director, they're at a perfect level to be a great mentor. And the last thing I'll say is, a mentor and a boss are two different things. I think some people are like, oh, my boss can mentor me. It's like, no, your boss is your boss, right? And you want to have your relationship with your mentor to understand how to work with your boss. If they're one of the same, it's too close. It's not enough degrees of separation. I agree. The objectives and values might align, but you know, what's his best interest or her best interest is, may not be yours, right? You know, so it's not going to mentor you on a, on a career change, you know? That would be a tough conversation. Exactly. You know, there's a lot of, just like our conversation earlier about critical race theory and people just getting locked into positions, there's a lot of kind of interesting discussion about DEI. Mm -hmm. right? You hear ESG and DEI, you know, thrown around as buzzwords, diversity, equity, inclusion. My perspective is it's really important. I, I'm in concurrence with you that diversity always trumps homogeneity, especially diversity of opinion and diversity of cultures and all sorts you know, if you have diversity without inclusion, then that gets shut down. Yep. All the benefits start to go away. So this is where you start to see that diversity and inclusion do go together, right? They're hand in glove. And then equity, right? It's like, okay, yeah. I mean, why is it that pay is 20% less or whatever it is, 14% less for, you know, one group over another when they do the same work? Like that yep. doesn't make any sense. So we've got to fix that. But it's like, 
I know there's a lot of statistical weighting and stuff that gets in there and people like fight over that. But like, just I'd love to, you know, as a senior executive now, after this long mountain climb of yours, what's your take on diversity, equity, inclusion? And how do we bring out the best of what those words really mean? So organizations can flourish as a multicultural organization. It's a great question. And I love the question and to give this a lot of thought. So I think what the country, our country, unfortunately did wrong was post-George Floyd, post-COVID, we ran to diversity, equity, inclusion. And so if you look at the stats, you can see in the headlines, the chief diversity officer role skyrocketed right. after 2020. They hired all these people to come in. They hired all these consultants to come in. And then the first thing they did was bias training. And so right. then they told all of their employees, you're bad and you're to blame for why the <laughs> America's the way it is. Right. And so. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny because that's exactly what happened. A lot of, I didn't, you know, I own my own company, so we didn't do that. But uh, I just heard a lot of about it, especially in the government, you know, like in the military and they're like supposed to be fighting, you know, getting ready for a war and, and they're sitting there doing this crazy training, learning about how bad they are. And the crazy thing about that is like, we knew these companies didn't have as much diversity. So the message was going to the dominant group. And it's like, you know, you're going to tell 80% of a company that they're bad and they're the reason why the company is not good. So I think that was like the total, like worst way about it. This is my value proposition for DE&I. McKinsey did three studies in 2014, 2016, and 2018 to look at Fortune 500 companies that have the highest profit margin. In every study, they found the most diverse companies performed the best, and they performed like 30% better than any other company. So any company that had more diversity, equity and inclusion keeps your diversity, because if you don't have those two, then you're going to lose your diversity. They perform better. So now you hook in the CFO. Now you hook in the CEO. Oh, this is not just window dressing and something nice to do. It's not bottom just, line impact. It's bottom line impact. Because anything that's nice to do when the recession hits is the first thing to go. So when we started laying off people after COVID, what was the first people to go? It was the chief diversity officer. Because like, well, this is on the liability side of the ledger, so we can cut. And then it's not revenue generating. Versus having a conversation to say, these Fortune 500 companies like American Express have diversity. They're trumping Visa and MasterCard in earnings per share and in growth and all these different metrics. So you have to set the basis on this is not an altruistic thing to do. This actually drives to the bottom line. Right. Okay, cool. You get over that. Then someone says, well, why? Maybe it's not the diversity. Maybe it's just those companies perform well. The reason why is because diversity brings in different thoughts, which means you eliminate groupthink, and everyone has bias. So when you have multiple biases, you're able to mitigate bias better. Interesting. Right? So these companies that make these really dumb mistakes, you know, they launch a product and they get egg on their face because people are like, I can't believe you were so insensitive. Yeah, like Bud Light recently. Exactly. So I can tell you that those issues happen when there's groupthink. And so you only make those decisions at a corporate level. When no one's saying, that's stupid. 
right? And the way you get there is because it's groupthink. Right. That's why these companies perform better because they have different people around the table that have different opinions and they're fighting and they're gnashing it out. It's not pretty. I think people think like diversity is pretty. No. No. Diversity means there's more angst, there's more discussion, there's more disagreements, there's more input from different sides, but you get to a better outcome. It's like pressure makes diamonds. So whatever idea you have, it's going to have a multitude of people that say something about it, and then you're going to come out with a better product. I think explaining that, it one, diversity is not pretty, it's messy, and it's disagreements, but you're better for it. And then two, this is a bottom line play. Do we want to make money? Do we want to make money? Yeah. Let's make some money, right? I think that's the better way to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion versus this like bias training that people always do. It never works. It never works. That's great. I love that discussion. And not only does it make for better decisions, but it makes you a better person because, you know, you get out of your own little echo chamber and 100%. your ideas have to stand the test against people who have completely different perspectives in life. And so it grinds you down it too. And, and you get stronger from that and you get less sensitive to every single word coming out of someone else's mouth being a wound, right? And that's like, we had to get real tough real quick in the SEAL teams because, you know, we took risk at such a high level that we we're always screwing up, but the consequence could be really high. So the feedback was yeah. extremely direct. And if you couldn't handle it, <laughs> you are gone. Yeah. So anyways, I think a diverse organization, like you said, is not all kumbaya sitting around and, you know, we just have this suddenly coalesce into this diverse viewpoint. No, it's sausage making on the way there and it makes everyone more resilient in the process. I was going to say one piece, as you said that, it just dawned on me. So one thing that happens is, so human nature is that people, for some strange reason, human beings are tribal. If there's white people and black people in a room, maybe the white people will huddle together and the black people will huddle together, just because they just feel a form of comfort. Now, if everyone's white, I'm just making this up, maybe the urban people, right. the people from urban neighborhoods that are white, coalesce together, and then the rural white people will coalesce together. And so, like, it doesn't matter who's in the room. Human nature is we're going to divide ourselves into and try to find our clusters, right? Yeah, that's interesting. That's human nature. So rather than trying to demonize it, like, why do you always hire women? It's like, well, it's a female. And so she hires lots of women. Like, rather than demonizing it, say, let's have a diverse leadership team. So if they all hire people that seem to be in their tribe, at least the, the leadership team is diverse. So then all the employees that they hire will be diverse. And that's another way to get at it too. Like human nature is human nature. People do like to coalesce around who they know. We have to be aware of it. We have to make sure that it doesn't mean that we're hiring unqualified people, right? You want to make sure they're qualified. But the nature of when you have more diverse leaders, you're going to naturally have more diverse employees. That's the other reason to do it too. So what's next for you? Like uh, you have aspirations to be CEO of Blue Shield or what's your... What's on your plate? <laughs> yeah. So I ended my book with, let's keep climbing and reach the top together. My journey has not ended. I'm a senior executive, but I haven't got to the CEO level yet. So I'm definitely charging towards that. I also want to amplify all the messages from the book. And so yeah. I do mentoring. I will talk to anybody. If they find me on LinkedIn or wherever, I'll always be happy to have breakfast with someone and try to you know, shared with them my story, but the book was I was able to reach so much more people than I could. And so I just want to amplify the voice because there's a lot of people out there that feel stuck. They feel like they can't move. 
they've done everything, and uh, hopefully this is a breath of fresh air for them. So that's also what I want to just keep doing. And in teaching, I love being able to see new students and sort of have a hand in how they think about the world moving forward. But that's really the three goals I have moving forward. That sounds awesome. Best of luck with all that. And we're here to support you in any way that we can. And so your book, The Way Up, Climbing the Corporate Mountain as a Professional of Color, I love that. That's out, right? It's available on Amazon and whatnot? It's out. It's on Amazon. It's in Barnes & Noble. It's everywhere books are sold. And how do you like people to reach out if they want to connect with you? Yeah, the best way is Instagram, Errol L. Pierre, or LinkedIn. And I'm Errol Pierre on LinkedIn. Errol Pierre. Awesome, Errol. Well, thank you again very much for your time. This has been an enlightening conversation. I really appreciate it. Hoo-yah to you, sir. Thank you so much, Mark. It was great. That was a really interesting conversation with Errol Pierre. Fascinating discussion. I really align with his views on DEI and diversity in general. And it's time to have those conversations above the fray. So thank you very much, Errol. Appreciate your time today. Show notes are on our website at markdevine.com. And the video is on our YouTube channel. If you need to reach out to us and um, promote any guests or ask questions, you can find me on Twitter slash X at Mark Devine and on Instagram or Facebook at Real Mark Devine or on my LinkedIn channel. If you're not on my newsletter distro list, go to markdevine.com to sign up and subscribe for Divine Inspiration, which comes out every Tuesday where I've got my blog. I've got show notes of the week's podcast in case you miss it. I've got a book I'm reading. I've got a weekly practice and other interesting things that come across my desk. So check it out. I think you'll like it. Shout out to my great team, Jason Sanderson, Jeff Haskell, and Catherine Devine, who helped produce this podcast and bring guests like Errol to you every week. Ratings and reviews are very, very helpful. So if you haven't rated or reviewed the show and you like it, then please consider doing so. It really helps others find it and to find it at the top of the rankings. So super helpful. And finally, as per usual, thanks for being part of the change that you want to see in the world. It all starts with us. All change comes first on the inside. So let's be the change, but we can do it at scale by sharing this podcast and by doing the work with our teams and our families. Till next time, it's your host, Mark Devine. Hoo-yah.